You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 23rd of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The outbreak is obviously much more than they anticipated, so they've taken an extraordinary step to try and lock down a city which is larger than most European cities at 11 million people. My guests Lindy Yu and John Everard will discuss the scale of China's lockdown related to the coronavirus outbreak and the day's other news, including as Brexit clears another hurdle on the road to becoming a reality, we will ask how prepared the politicians who orchestrated this long divorce are for the aftermath. And as Tokyo officials try to drum up enthusiasm for the city's immense fish market, while perhaps still mourning the loss of its historical predecessor, we look at other instances of relocation failure. Plus, Zurich's light rail is used by everyone, from bakers to bankers, and with climate change on the minds of all in attendance at Davos. Its friendlier carbon footprint makes it an easy choice. We'll zip from Zurich to Davos by train. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Linda Yu, economist and author, and John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea. Uh, let's start in China, where authorities are taking a draconian line on controlling what appears to be a new virus. Wuhan, a city of nearly 11 million people, has been more or less locked down. Planes and trains in and out have been suspended, as have buses, ferries and subways within. More than 500 cases of the coronavirus have been confirmed, though reports suggest thousands of people descending on hospitals in Wuhan. 17 people are known to have died, though it seems very likely that that number will rise. Um, Linda, are you able to recall a lockdown of this size ever having been attempted? Only in movies, I think, Andrew, is (laughs) where I would mention a a city that size. But I think think the extraordinary thing is how you lock down a city of that size, Um, because certainly one of the challenges with the spread of this kind of virus is that you are trying to to contain. But given what the Chinese government said a few weeks ago, clearly um, the seriousness of the virus, the the outbreak, is obviously much more than they anticipated. So they've taken an extraordinary step, which is to try and lock down um, a city which is, to be honest, larger than most most European cities at 11 million people. Uh, it is. It's a, a thing I know we've spoken about before, John. It's that perpetually, perpetually sort of slightly freaky reminder of the size of China, that every so often a story like this pops up. It's a city you realise you've barely heard of, um, and yet uh, it, it, it is an extraordinarily large place. Um, but that being the case, does this seem like an overreaction by Chinese authorities? Wuhan, 42nd city in the world, it's huge. Overreaction? No. If anything, they reacted far too late and they've been far too lenient. Um, You asked us a minute ago about uh, previous lockdowns of big cities. Mexico City, 2009, swine fever. Mm. Uh, Obviously, Mexico, very different place from China. Uh, And they had to bring in the military and heaven knows what else. Uh, The lockdown was less than complete, but it did actually slow the spread of the disease down. So on on that evidence, lockdowns do work. But they're too late. Uh, It's understood that this virus had an incubation period of perhaps a week, uh, so that there are 
thousands, probably tens of thousands of people wandering around at the moment who have been, uh, who, who may well have been infected, but are not yet infectious. You know, that the symptoms will start to emerge in the next few days. It couldn't have happened at a worse time of year. Uh, the Chinese New Year mm. holiday starts tomorrow. The biggest movement of people uh, in history. Every year the records get broken. Uh, millions and millions of people moving around the country. A lot of the people uh, have already left Wuhan, of course, a big industrial city, uh, and gone back to villages where they where they have you know, their, their, their families. I have a sinking, sinking feeling uh, that in the next couple of weeks we are going to see many, many more cases and that we are, in the end, going to have to declare a global health epidemic. Uh, Linda... Even with the formidable resources uh, and willingness to deploy them of the Chinese Communist Party, you can't really, can you, lock down 11 million people without a certain amount of cooperation from those 11 million people? Is there likely to be much in the way of disobedience? from the Wuhanese? Because there clearly will be, as reports from inside Wuhan are suggesting, a lot of very frightened people. Mm, there are. And this is why lockdowns are very difficult. You can always profess an intent to do it. But are you really going to be able to, short of bringing in uh, the considerable might of the Chinese army, for instance, to really block um, people traveling? Because especially around Chinese New Year, you're going to have migrant workers who want to leave the major cities like Wuhan and return to their countryside. And I think part of a controlling an epidemic is information. And in one sense, Chinese social media, Chinese dissemination of information is very good. But of course, given a a city of that size, a country of that size, there's going to be a limit to that. There'll be those who don't really understand why this is happening. They're going to want to to go. But I think we should probably also just stress what John said. Um, It's already quite late. Um, mm. There's are the um, it's a SARS-like virus and it's already spread um, not just to the west coast of the United States, which is where I think it came into uh, real prominence in the international media, but it's also it's in Hong Kong, it's in the surrounding um, region already, and so I do wonder if and certainly um, there's a couple of towns and cities around Wuhan in the province which are already reporting cases. So it's already spread within China beyond um, what they're trying to lock down at the moment, which is Wuhan. John, you use the phrase global health emergency. Uh, One obvious point of comparison, I guess, is the various Ebola outbreaks we've seen in recent years in sub-Saharan Africa. Those have been contained to an extent by a mighty international effort to bring them under control. How receptive would the Chinese Communist Party be if the rest of the world, which may already be affected by this, uh, to say to China, we can help? I think you would hear the slamming down of shutters very quickly. The idea that China cannot cope uh, with an epidemic in its own territory will be deeply shameful to the Communist Party, and I think that any offer of help would be resisted. But of course, it is spreading. I mean, Hanguang, the the next city down the, the way, a bit to east of Wuhan, uh, announced lockdown uh, a few hours ago, and I doubt that's going to be the last. One thing about the lockdown is that, whereas in Mexico City, they actually did lock everything down. In Wuhan, they've only locked down flights and trains. You can still take a vehicle out of the city. And given the social pressure on a lot of the migrant workers to get back to their villages, I suspect quite a lot of them will simply get on a bicycle, cycle out of Wuhan and get on the next train train stop outside the city. And there's no way the president is stopping them doing that. I mean, Linda, we've, we've talked uh, also before about 
the spread of information in China where situations like Hong Kong are concerned and tried to figure out how much people in mainland China would have understood about the demonstrations in Hong Kong. Again, as far as it's possible to tell, if you live in any other city in China right now, how much would you know about what is happening in Wuhan? Yeah, I think on this one... um quite a bit. Um, and I think it's because, again, weeks ago, I don't think the government um, fully, and to be honest, health epidemics can be like this. You're never sure if it's going to be something which is not too major, or in this case, unfortunately, it is something very major. So on Weibo on Chinese social media, there's been quite a lot of discussions around what is it when people fall ill, what happens, and obviously this is something that's already spread beyond China. So they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to not know that um, Wuhan is on um, lockdown, and this is now becoming something which is. Um, going forward. They mm. may not hear much more about it, but certainly up to this point. I think that the impression is that the Chinese do know about it beyond um, within China itself. Linda's absolutely right. It's all over China social media, but it's also on the official media. I was listening to Beijing Radio this morning, and there was quite a long piece on what is happening, uh, what the threats are, what to do, urging people to neither enter nor try to leave Wuhan. Uh, so you don't have to go to the social media if you're in China to learn about this. Uh, John, China's government's priority one would hope, certainly, is to actually contain and control uh, whatever this virus is. But beyond the virus itself, what will be worrying the Chinese Communist Party right now? Would it be the threat of disorder within China or uh, damage potentially to China's reputation overseas? What will be their their concerns? Not damage to reputation overseas, damage to its reputation in China. Not just disorder, but shame. Remember the effect that the Chernobyl fracas had on mm. the Soviet Union and led directly to the, the collapse of Soviet government. If not well handled, this kind of epidemic has the potential to do that for China. Worse, remember that China has invested huge amounts of money in technology to control its citizens, including facial recognition technology. They've now made it mandatory in Wuhan to wear face masks, which means that if there is disorder, all the facial recognition technology isn't going to work. They're going to be faced with an amorphous mass of people, angry at mishandling of what's going on, over whom they have no control. This gets scary. John Everard and Lindy Yu will have more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. U.S. Democrats have ruled out a witness swap with Republicans in Donald Trump's impeachment trial. Many lawmakers want to hear testimony from the president's former national security adviser, John Bolton. But Democrats have refused any deal that would allow Joe Biden's son to be called as a witness. Tesla has displaced Volkswagen as the world's second most valuable car maker. It's largely because of the sharp rise in the company's share price, which has pushed its market value to more than 90 million euros. It makes Tesla's valuation second only to Toyota. And the Monocle Minute reports that Canada's national broadcaster is stepping up attempts to help much smaller media outlets. CBC's boss, Catherine Tate, told business leaders in Toronto the move was an attempt to stay relevant in a fast-changing industry. And for more on this story, you can head to monocle.com minute and subscribe to our Daily Digest. Those are the news headlines. Now back to you, Andrew.
Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with John Everard and Lindy Yu. Let's look now at the UK, which is to say, once again, let's look now at Brexit. The Brexit bill overcame its final parliamentary hurdle yesterday after the government overturned five amendments floated by the House of Lords in an attempt to buff a few of the edges offered. All of which means that next Friday, the United Kingdom will leave the European Union short of obliteration by a meteorite strike or some other miraculous deliverance. Um, Linda, with your economist's hat on, how excited for the sunlit uplands are you? <laughs> well, I suppose we're still waiting on the royal ascent, aren't we? Um, that uh, this is the... It, 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 uh, would be a, it would be something of an overturning of form for that would, to be withheld yeah. at this point. You were mentioning meteorites, so I yeah. thought I'd mention mm. something closer to home. Which <laughs> is such, I mean, um, it, it would be extremely funny, but I, th- I think it's, it's probably very, pretty no, unlikely. I, I, I completely agree. And um, the only reason I mention it is because the SNP, the Scottish Nationalists, are attempting to mount a challenge using the royal ascent to try and stall um, Brexit Day. So so there's still a little bit of drama around Brexit. Um, unsurprisingly, I'm sure there will be drama up until the last day. And I think one of the things probably to say is, of course, in all seriousness, all preparations in Whitehall are to leave next Friday. And the disbanding of DEX-EU, the Department mm-hmm. for Exit, and setting up two different trade teams to ensure that there are parallel negotiations with the United States and with the EU over the trade agreement. Now, in terms of that approach, Um, I mean, there's a few things to say about it, but one is focusing on two countries or blocks is better than a more um, scattergun approach because this is obviously, um, there's capacity issues in terms of how much can be um, done. But I think one of the... um, big things to think about is whether or not, even with this kind of concerted approach, we will have a trade deal by the end of the year. Because if we don't, then um, the government's 80 majority means that we will once again be faced with leaving the EU um, when this transition period is over with no trade deal. So we're back to trading on WTO rules. And economists, you know, would say that that is another or businesses would say um, that's the kind of cliff edge that um, is has been pushed out to the end of the year. Um, but it's certainly worrying for quite a lot of them still. Uh, John, Linda has just there capably demonstrated uh, the well, I guess, mendacity of the slogan which won Boris Johnson that majority of get Brexit done, because obviously next Friday he will claim this is a great triumph, delivery on his promise, I have gotten Brexit done, it has happened. How much of a bounce do you think he's going to get and for how long um, when people start to realise that Brexit has very much not got done and in fact this may just be the beginning of years and years and years further headache? Uh, I think he'll get an immediate, quite large bounce. I, I suspect that in, in large part of the UK population um, that there will be much adulation of Boris Johnson for a few weeks to come until, as you say, light dawns and people understand that we are that this is just the beginning uh, of what's going to be a very long and very painful process. Are we going to get a trade deal by the end of this year? Spoiler alert, no, we're not. <laughs> uh, the, I mean, a trade deal of this complexity, you are looking at years and years of hard negotiation by a skilled team. We do not have a skilled team. The UK has got almost no trade negotiators. Uh, and one of the things the Foreign Office did when Brexit started to loom on the horizon was scurry around trying to steal them from other places with a remarkable lack of success. Uh, Lynn's quite right. We can't afford a scattergun approach. 
we have to concentrate on a few big markets of the EU and the US in the first instance, which means, of course, that at the end of the transition period, uh, our trade relations with anybody outside those two, and that makes the heroic assumption that we've actually made some kind of progress in negotiations, even with those two partners, that they are to be governed by World Trade Organization rules. Are they? <laughs> there are real, there's real doubt over whether the UK is actually a WTO member. The EU is... And we have always used EU membership uh, in our own uh, own way. But once we leave the EU, it's not at all clear that we actually have WTO rights. And to enter the WTO, you're looking at a decade. This is one horrible mess. Well, Linda, the dynamic, though, has been changed, I think, by that uh, large majority the Tories won in December that you alluded to. Because what we'd seen for three and a half years before that was whenever there was any impediment or roadblock erected you're in the path to the sunlit uplands of Brexit, those campaigning for Brexit would just say, well, this is everybody else's fault but ours. It's the fault of the deep state or Remainers or whoever else they chose to blame at the time. There's no way now is there, at the risk of tempting fate, that the Brexiters can pretend they don't own this. If this does go askew, if this does develop into the, the torturous kind of process that John was outlining, who are they going to blame? The EU. <laughs> as, soon, as soon as I asked it, I realised, God, that's a stupid question. <laughs> no, not at all. I think. Um, I mean, I think one of the one of the di- one of the the deepest challenges with Brexit is that even though we all focus on the economic consequences, a lot of it has nothing to do with with economics. So, the relationship, the perception with the EU, people's decisions are quite, I think quite complex. Therefore, the blame is going to be complex because you're not really giving the other side necessarily um, the benefit of the doubt. Nor am I suggesting, by the way, international relations you naturally would. (laughs) But there is a big gap between the the rhetoric of we're going to be close partners, we're going to have a Canada-style plus, plus, plus. I always want to know how many pluses they're going to add on the free trade agreement, (laughs) Canada-style. But, you know, know, it's going to be difficult um, and each side is going to want a lot of um, advantage, as John said. I can't imagine the French, which are already positioning themselves, to really take a big piece of our services, financial services, business. I know Luxembourg is looking at fintech. All of fishing rights, all of these things are going to require, there's going to be a lot of clashes and conflict. So I would imagine there is going to be blame. And, you know, it'll be blamed on the Europeans. And depending on how the American negotiations go and who they negotiate with, um, there is a, there is an election happening in the United States. There may well also be blame on the other side, but I would say all of that is is quite natural. But I just would not discount blaming other things, other you know whether it's you know the other side. Not there's just going to be a lot of blame. <laughs> well, I can't anyone. I can't imagine anyone saying, "Oh, it's all it's all our fault that this is not going well." You know? Well, plenty to look forward to there. Clearly, uh, finally today on the news panel though to Tokyo and anybody who had ever enjoyed the overwhelming experience of having visited the city's immense Sujik Tsukiji fish market uh, will have spent the last couple of years mourning its passing. It was an astonishing bazaar of weird marine delicacies where you could breakfast on things which would have boggled the imagination of Jules Verne. It increasingly seems that among those who miss it are the market's former stallholders who are enticing less footfall to the new site in Toyosu. Um, first of all, did either or both of you ever have the pleasure mm-hmm. of vis- It was an amazing place. Um, I, I visited it while still suffering from food poisoning, which I had... Uh, <laughs> 
acquired from a seafood salad at Sapporo Airport. Um, but I was determined not to miss it on my first visit to Tokyo. It was amazing. And John was moving at a mistake. We don't yet know, do we? Let, uh, there's a parallel story here. Uh, way back in the early 1930s, OK, I wasn't around at the time. I've read a library. There was a big effort to move the central market in Sao Paulo in Brazil for the usual reasons. It smelt of fish. It smelt of all kinds of strange things. And the, the market people resisted, resisted, resisted. And uh, But eventually they were bought off by a splendid new building uh, created by one of Brazil's most famous architects, just a little out of the city. People thought the move was too far, but then, of course, what happened was that Sao Paulo grew and grew and grew, so that although the market was moved out of the centre, the centre simply moved back over the market, and everything went back to, to where it was before, and people are generally quite happy. So, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit stuffy about places staying in their traditional places. I think one of the places staying in their traditional places... Linda, you know what I'm saying. I, I remember <laughs> I, I spent an incredibly depressing evening in Nashville um, in the late 90s, very excited uh, to get to see, as a country music fan, a recording and broadcast of the Grand Ole Opry, having not quite internalised that it was no longer being recorded at the beautiful Ryman Auditorium in downtown Nashville and had instead been relocated to some ghastly theme park on the outskirts, sort of like listening to Charlie Leuven singing gospel while there was kind of a roller coaster whirling, whirling around in the background was it was it was disorienting do, do you, are there any particular examples of the same thing that that new mourn a place that just should have stayed where it was well, I was thinking actually about um, this fish market. I think, um, you know, I've actually enjoyed incredibly good uh, sushi and sashimi there. And I think, you know, it's, um, it's a bit of a shame that has caused this, this um, you know, this, this location. Um, the other big move I was, I've been looking at is, um, you know, that Indonesia has decided to move mm. its, its entire capital, Jakarta, <laughs> not just like a little bit. They're going to move it to Borneo, which is in the middle of the um, the rainforest. And I was also thinking about um, Myanmar, which uh, formerly Burma, which is which also moved. Um, it's you know, created a capital, Nebidal, in the middle of sort of um, these big jungles. And I sort of see those kinds of moves as hugely risky, I guess, because obviously, you know, transport and, and uh, well, rainforests in the case of of um, Borneo, but I suppose I see these kind of smaller moves, these kind of historical sites as being a bit of a shame. I do actually rather like you. I like to go into a historical place and think that this is the building where some great writer came up with their inspiration and, you know, some wonderful opera house which is still there and has been there for hundreds of years. And so there's a real nostalgia um, to it and it'd be a shame for people not to go to the new location, the fish market and try to hire that sushi. <laughs> Absolutely. I just want to offer a count example mm. of a market that didn't move. Uh, way back at the beginning of Pinochet's rule in Chile, there were big moves to move the fish market in Santiago uh, out to the outskirts, because again, it smelt of fish. Fish markets <laughs> often do this. And they, the market people resisted fiercely, demonstrations, sort of sit-ins, whatever, and Pinochet backed down. Uh, the result is that the market continues to be famous. You still go there for your breakfast fish, rather than it's used to it in Tokyo. But it's become so famous that now it actually costs you more to sit down on a rather rickety stall and a, and a, on, a, on a plain board uh, table and eat fish from the market than it does to have the same fish served to you on a starched white linen tablecloth <laughs> in a smart restaurant in downtown Santiago. Linda, you and John Everard, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we will take a look at how the global elite are getting to Davos and suggest a better mode of transport. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. 
This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, let's hear from Monocle's Ben Ryland, who explains why taking a train is really the best way to travel to the World Economic Forum in Davos. The people of the World Economic Forum know how to make an entrance. For many here, the arrival is the best part. Nothing takes the chill off an icy alpine day quite like touching down on board a private jet before sneaking into a waiting black sedan with heated leather seats. But I know an even better way of travelling to Davos that's arguably more comfortable and much more efficient. The humble Swiss train. Switzerland is a global leader when it comes to rail transport. Zurich's light rail is used by everyone, from bakers to bankers, and with climate change on the minds of all in attendance at Davos. Its friendlier carbon footprint makes it an easy choice. But if the prophets of doom are to be believed, Donald Trump's words, not mine, then rail travellers may have reason to worry. When transport strikes began across France in December, some lines in Paris continued operating without interruption. The secret? Driverless trains. While the world has been tying itself in knots over the rise of autonomous cars turning our highways into a scene out of Blade Runner, the automation of rail has been quietly on the expressway. There's a good chance that you've already stepped on board an autonomous train. Paris's Line 1, London's DLR, the monorail at Disneyland. Switzerland recently began testing driverless rail too, but while the benefits may be obvious, there may be hidden costs as well. The popularity of trains here isn't just about ease and efficiency, it's also a question of trust. Drivers, onboard crew and station staff, they all take pride in their work, which encourages passengers to appreciate the system too. Rail operators should always look for ways to improve their services, but as Switzerland's trains remind us, the experience on board is just as important as the destination. That was Ben Ryland, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks for listening.